This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chetka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. It's quite common for individuals to go through periods where they feel somewhat sad and discouraged, and often these mood changes tend to occur with the changes in seasons, especially the winter months when the days get shorter. In some cases, these mood changes can become more serious and can result in depression. When people experience depressive episodes in the late fall and winter, this may represent seasonal affective disorder. Our guest today is Dr. Craig Sawchuk, a psychologist and chair of the Division of Integrated Behavioral Health in the Department of Psychiatry and Psychology at the Mayo Clinic. Our topic for today's podcast is seasonal affective disorder, and we'll discuss its frequency, how we can recognize it in our patients, and the available treatment options. Craig, thanks for joining us today. Great. Thanks for having, uh, having me on the show. Well, you know, I've heard the term winter blues for a long time. How does this seasonal affective disorder differ from that? Well, I really liked your introduction of the winter blues because it's not uncommon when it starts to get a lot colder outside and it feels like you're going into work and coming home in the dark, that we kind of slow down. You know, we get a little bit more tired. We're not as physically active. We may want to sleep, you know, a little bit more. We're not as socially active as well, too. But it usually doesn't get to the point where it really causes people problems in day-to-day living. So we venture to guess that maybe about 20% of the population could get to that zone of some of the winter blues where they really are kind of bogged down, but really not causing problems in their life. But then there's a line where we cross and it becomes more clinical, where people actually do start to experience more functional impairment from their symptoms. And that's where we start to think about seasonal affective disorder. You know, I can think of a new disorder you can come up with if you want, but you know, in Minnesota, you know, our winters are like six, seven months long. And I, I kind of think there's a place for MAD or Minnesota affective disorder. You can maybe work on that. But uh, Yeah, I'm from the Pacific Northwest, so I'm yeah. really yeah. familiar with the seasonal affective disorder because of the rain. Yes. <laughs> so yes. definitely hear you. Yeah. Well, can this occur at any age? Is it typical of any certain uh, age individual? Yeah, seasonal affective disorder, it can, to some degree, happen to anybody, honestly, at any point in time across their lifetime. There's even some data where this, you know, does impact adolescents as well. But the most common sweet spot, if you think of almost like a normal distribution, the most common, you know, sweet spot for ages are really between the ages of 20 and 30. That's where we tend to see the most number of cases and certainly more of the first onset cases. But again, in clinically in practice, it's not uncommon. I'll see folks in their you know, 40s, 50s, 60s, or even 70s, where they start to develop this pattern of a seasonal disruption in their mood. So other than the seasonal aspect of this, is this typical depression that occurs in winter months? Yeah, it's kind of yes and no. Uh, so if we... Um, Kind of backtrack just a little bit and talk about the nature of seasonal affective disorder. Even though we talk about it in in this way, like SAD, that's not a diagnosis. It's part of a diagnosis of a recurring mood disorder. And how we think about the role that the seasons play is we need at least a two-year pattern where this happens, where there's a reliable time during a certain time of the year where we see a mood change. 
and likewise a reliable time at a later time of the year where the mood returns back to baseline. And this needs to be really independent of situational stressors maybe that are going on or maybe some historical anniversaries or losses that they've gone through so that there really is the season plays a big role in this. Now, the symptoms can look partially similar that we would typically think of if we're talking about seasonal affective disorder from a depression standpoint. This can also occur in, in bipolar, but in a depression standpoint, we can think of the mood disruption. So yes, you can get the sad, the down, but also you tend to see a lot of apathy and people feeling really blah. But some of the cardinal symptoms that are even more unique or even more pronounced in seasonal affective disorder is you see really extreme fatigue. So a lot of that energy disruption, sometimes people even talk about their arms and legs feeling like lead. So it's really much harder for them to move around. Hypersomnia is a big part of this as well too, just that high need for sleep, carbohydrate cravings, and what typically goes along with that is weight gain. So I think what's actually really, really a helpful way of thinking about it, what makes um, seasonal recurring depressive episode with a seasonal pattern is like hibernation. It's just slowing down, putting on the weight, kind of that withdrawing, you know, back a little bit more. Those are some of the cardinal symptoms that we tend to see. So does this tend to be more common in, say, in this country, at least in the northern states, where uh, we certainly get much less light and we're indoors uh, versus those who live in the southern states, Florida, Texas, so forth, where they may still have shorter days, but they're at least outside being exposed to the light and sunlight more than we are in the northern climate. So does it change based on where we live? It does, and it kind of depends on what research you pay attention to. So typically in the North American studies, that's definitely, you know, the pattern that we see. We see prevalence rates of seasonal depression kind of anywhere between, you know, it depends on the study you look at. Sometimes it's like 0.5% up to about 6%, you know, of the population. The more northern states, Minnesota, Maine, Lots of places in Canada where I'm from, we see those rates of seasonal depression higher, lower latitudes. So you, you get to some of our uh, Mayo Clinic places located in Arizona and Florida, those rates do come down. So definitely that light distribution tends to play quite a role. And we'll definitely talk about that in a little bit. The European studies are a little bit more mixed. Sometimes you see latitude playing a role and other times not. So that may speak to additional factors like genetic factors that may be playing a role and other cultural and environmental factors as well. How about the extreme north, like those who live in Alaska who may see maybe two hours of daylight per day? Is this quite common up there? Yeah, you can definitely see it as well. However, we also think about um, being indigenous to that area as well, too. And as there's some, been some adaptations that have gone along with that, even though this can be anecdotal, you think of migration. So I was born and raised in the Pacific Northwest. I'm used to going for a very long period of time without seeing the sun. Not much of a deal. People that move maybe from another area and into that climate, it can be very tough for them as well, too. So I think that kind of loops back to this idea that, you know, as humans, we're adaptable creatures as, as well. And, and we may have adapted to some degree in some of these environments where there's actually not as much light. Mm -hmm. Well, you mentioned that the symptoms are very similar to those of uh, depression, typically typical depression. How about suicide? Is that a potential outcome of seasonal affective disorder? 
It certainly can be, but it's actually less likely an outcome than we see in a regular recurrent major depressive disorder or even bipolar. So when we actually look at rates of suicide, they are lower among seasonal depression. And somewhat interrelated with this is just taking a step back and look at seasonality rates of suicide is actually during winter months, we actually tend to see a reduction in suicide rates. I think, you know, relative to the average is about a 15% reduction. Suicide rates tend to increase in the spring and summer months, and usually by an increase of 13 to 15%. So there's some independent seasonality, but typically in the seasonal affective disorder, if we're thinking about a winter depression type of uh, pattern, then it's actually less likely than we would see in a typical depressive episode. Okay. As I was doing some reading on uh, seasonal affective disorder, I came across an area where they were describing some possible association between affective, seasonal affective disorder and bipolar illness, where the depressive phase may occur during the winter months and almost like a, a manic phase typically in the summer months. Is that thought to be true? Yeah, very much so. And it gets back to, you know, when we talk about seasonal affective disorder, just the typical pattern that we think about is, okay, it gets into the fall and winter months, light goes down, mood becomes more depressed as it gets to the early spring or early summer and the mood reliably improves. However, if we take a step back, remember we're talking about a season, the mood change is associated with the season and the mood change can either go down or go up. So this is where there is a smaller percentage. So the a good 80% of seasonal affective disorder is that stereotypic you know, example that we just gave about during the fall and winter months, the mood goes down, but there's about 20% of folks that show a different pattern. The next most common pattern is the one you're describing where it's more of a bipolar type of pattern. So we get into the spring summer months when light increases and more hypomanic getting charged up types of symptoms, you know, start to come around. And when we actually look at a, a bipolar diagnosis, folks that show that pattern where in the spring, summer months that they start to become really, really energized, it tends to be more of a bipolar two type of pattern. So not quite as extreme as a full-on manic episode that would meet criteria for a bipolar one disorder, but we see some of that bipolar two. And then in the fall and winter months, that comes back down. In a very small percentage of folks, usually about 5% of, of folks, you see this kind of reversal that in the summer months, their mood goes down into more of a depressive state and then rebounds in the fall and winter time. That's pretty rare. Is this all due to the amount of light we receive? And how, what role does light play in our mood? Right. So when we think about um, paying attention to kind of the epidemiology and, you know, some of the research in terms of what types of symptoms that we're seeing and back to this idea of almost like a hibernation type of syndrome, then it kind of makes sense that uh, light is involved with this. And almost anecdotally, the early research was, well, what happens when you start to expose people to light during the early morning hours with seasonal uh, depression, folks started to report some improvements and there's there's been just a, a long line of research that's followed from that time. So that's definitely playing a role of what's going on in, in here. Now, people vary in terms of if we think of 
underlying vulnerabilities that may be in, in play, the serotonergic and dopaminergic uh, systems as they're responsible for a lot of body functioning and, and mood regulation. That certainly plays a role, but also clock genes also play a role that impact a lot of our circadian rhythms. And the, at least one of the theories or their thoughts that with diminished light, it starts to create a phase shift that starts to impact our circadian rhythms. And that can also start to impact neurotransmitter expression, body temperature, sleep regulation, as well too, as well as melatonin secretion. And that can start to cause some variability. So this phase shifting starts to happen and light may help regulate that. There's also been some additional studies. They're not quite as big, but some additional clues sometimes of even retinal reactivity to light can be lower among folks with seasonal depression. And that tends to recover a little bit later, as well as lower cortisol levels in the morning hours during seasonal times have also been, been shown in some of these patients. So light definitely plays a role and that actually has great implications for when we think about uh, treatment options. One thing I often see in my practice when I'm seeing patients who are from the more Northern climates is a vitamin D deficiency. D is related to the amount of ultraviolet light we get. Uh, is there any evidence that a vitamin D deficiency could be playing a role? Again, anecdotally, you think it would and it should, but in most cases, it's actually not. So when they've actually done studies about just increasing vitamin D supplementation, that doesn't seem to really impact seasonal depression symptoms. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean for that particular individual, there isn't a deficiency going on. And certainly, you know, with our primary care colleagues doing a workup, you know, on folks and doing a metabolic panel, they may be looking at you know, vitamin D and TSH, you know, as well too. We want to make sure that those factors are ruled out. And certainly some of our patients, vitamin D supplementation may be helpful for other areas of their functioning as well. But yep, typically it's actually not the case that we see where there's a, a deficiency in vitamin D. Okay. Yeah, that'd be too easy, I guess. Yeah, that would be nice. <laughs> you mentioned brain neurochemicals, serotonin, for example. Is there enough work done at this to know if there's any deficiencies in any of the specific neurochemicals? Once again, it's kind of like, what do we know from just the treatment of mood disorders in general? And how does that play into how do we end up treating these conditions? So we always think of just a reduction of available serotonin, as well as some other neurotransmitters that help to regulate just mood, sleep, all sorts of our functioning. And that's where, when we think of uh, treatments for major mood disorders like depression, we think of the types of interventions like SSRIs, you know, or, or fluoxetine and, and sertraline and, and the like um, are really designed to make more of those neurotransmitters more available, you know, at the receptor sites. And same thing with bipolar disorder, making sure that we're doing mood regulation with lithium or valproic acid as well too. The actual mechanisms by which they actually operate, because we're talking about billions of receptor sites and billions upon billions of these neurotransmitters as well too. The unit of analysis is pretty small, but there's definitely, when we think of the type of mood disruption that we see, those neurotransmitters play a role as well as other hormones as well. I imagine the majority of patients with seasonal affective disorder will present to their primary care provider before they would go to a psychiatrist, psychologist. So how can we as a primary care provider recognize this in our patients and how do we actually diagnose it? 
it's actually usually diagnosed um, with just a really thorough history. And then there's some additional things that we can do that can help complement our primary care colleagues. The good thing about you know being in primary care and, and family medicine is we develop a relationship with our patients across time. And that really is a gift at multiple levels, but it also allows us to see if, is this a similar pattern or types of symptoms that we've seen them report before during a certain time of year? And especially when we're thinking about the more common, the winter depression, you know, really looking for those hibernation types of symptoms that we described earlier on and working to get an idea of that seasonal pattern. Okay, you know, if we kind of rewind the clock last year, last couple of years, is there a fairly reliable time when these symptoms start to come on? And then likewise, is there a reliable time that these symptoms start to go away? So getting an idea of the types of symptoms are really key, paying attention to what are those higher risk factors. So the latitude being one, also female gender is another one that's three to five times more likely in females than in males, which is a higher discrepancy than we would see in a typical mood disorder is that age range or in that kind of sweet spot age range that, that we talked about. And then there are also some questionnaires that could be helpful to us. A lot of our primary care colleagues are really familiar with using the PHQ-9. It doesn't get into seasonality at all, but allows us to start to identify certain characteristic symptoms of depression. And then there's the seasonal health questionnaire, which is a little bit of a longer questionnaire. It's freely available out there. But what's really good about that questionnaire is it not only gets at the types of, of those hibernation symptoms, but also starts to tease out that ratio between seasonal depressive episodes versus non-seasonal depressive episodes. So with getting that self-report measure, sometimes some key informant collateral information from a partner or a spouse or a family member, those can be actually quite helpful in diagnosing this condition. Do you think most of these patients can be uh, treated effectively by a primary care provider? Yes, very much so. And, and actually, our primary care colleagues are extremely well-trained in even just psychotropics and, and managing mental health, because your comment earlier on, it really hits home to me, is the vast majority of people, when they start to have difficulties, their first place to go is primary care and family medicine, as opposed to going to see the mental health person. But the great thing is that there's lots of treatment options that actually can be initiated at the primary care level and can be very effectively done and managed by the primary care teams. And for those folks that get stuck, or maybe there's some additional complications or greater severity, that's where we think of almost like in a step care type model, helping to kick it up in terms of whether it be a curbside consultation with a mental health specialist that they have one available or a follow-up consultation and, and additional management with a mental health colleague would also be ideal. Well, let's talk about treatment. How should we get started when we diagnose a patient with this condition? All right. So we can think of four types of treatments that we can offer here. So one, the uh, first thing is just the lifestyle interventions that, that we can do. Remember, during this time, especially with winter depression, it's slowing us down. And that desire to just sleep more, withdraw more, eat a little bit more, there are some very behavioral things that we can do. So some things that we can do from a lifestyle perspective are stay on a schedule, really watch that sleep-wake cycle, really watch that desire to get two, three, four hours of extra sleep you know, a day, especially on weekends. Try to maintain a reliable time of when you go to bed and when you wake up even on weekends or days off or holidays, just to keep that, that regulation. When you get up, 
get the lights on, open up the blind, natural light, artificial light, kind of get that going during the course of a given day. Try to stay physically active, watch the carbohydrates, because remember, that's kind of a driver as well, too. We think of some of those lifestyle interventions, those are good just any time, you know, during our lives. But doing those lifestyle interventions can be helpful. You'd also mentioned earlier on about, you know, just even going outside, that can be helpful as well, because, you know, on a cloudy day, it's about a 3000 lux intensity, but then you, or actually it was, it's more than that on, on a cloudy day, but on a bright sunny day, it's almost like a 50,000 lux intensity. So that is like a free light box on the outside, but those lifestyle interventions are one using a light box is uh, number two. And, and the thing that's great about the light box is they are much more portable now than they've ever been. The prices come down on them. And they're very, very easy to use. So you really want to aim for a light box that's a 10,000 lux. That's that intensity by distance from your eyes, using it within the first hour of waking up in the morning, using it for a half hour, making sure that your eyes are staying open while you're doing it, keeping the light box maybe two to five feet away from you, but using it for that reliable time whenever your mood tends to trend down. So if your mood tends to trend down, say towards the mid-November, then maybe two weeks ahead of that time, kind of early November, start using that light box and get into it. And then eventually, you know, as symptoms start to improve, and they can actually improve within anywhere between one to three weeks, then you can maybe start to work at titrating it or backing it off maybe down to 20 to even 15 minutes and keeping that going the entire time until the season helps to reliably improve your mood. Now, if you start to use light boxes that are maybe 5,000 lux, then you're basically adding more time. So you want to be under that light box for an hour, or if it's 2,500 you know, lux, it's probably closer to two hours. So it's really worthwhile and worth the money to invest in a 10,000 lux light box. Like I mentioned, there's a couple of other interventions that we can do as well, med management and psychotherapy. How about pharmacologic therapy? Same medications we'd use in depression? Largely, really uh, largely. And the ones that have had the most uh, research has been fluoxetine and, and sertraline. And I think, you know, one of the advantages with our primary care colleagues with uh, fluoxetine, they're really familiar with using that medication. It's got a much longer half-life than a lot of the other antidepressants. So that's a really good one to be able to manage. There's been smaller studies done with the range of other, you know, SSRI antidepressants and some of the SNRI antidepressants as well. The hope is that if this is a recurring pattern, probably not a bad idea to stay on the medication. There is some more recent research that's come out that using an antidepressant once the seasonal symptoms start are not as effective as if they were starting the antidepressant beforehand. So there is definitely a good place for the SSRIs and a combination treatment of a light box and an SSRI, especially when you're seeing more severe symptoms, that might be you know, a good idea from a clinical practice standpoint. Craig, are there some patients that we should consider referring, maybe those who exhibit uh, a suggestion of bipolar illness, or are there other conditions where we should really consider referring to a mental health specialist? 
in no particular order, I would uh, definitely uh, agree with you. When there's bipolar, you know, related illness, because there's also sometimes some concern with being able to use our antidepressants and does that place them at, at risk or uh, triggering a manic or a hypomanic episode and looking at the role that mood stabilizers play and in the management of those patients, we also know that that has a metabolic impact on them. So we got to pay a little closer attention to labs as well, where we're working with the medication and getting them settled. And also with light therapy when working with bipolar, bipolar folks can show seasonal depressive symptoms. And I know anecdotally folks have worried about does use of light boxes, you know, trigger a manic episodes, um, very tiny percent. So it's not necessarily as common as we think, but nonetheless, and I think also treatment refractory patients, if you're on your second SSRI, for example, and you're trying and they're not responding, or there's other comorbidities going on where there's comorbid anxiety disorders and maybe a substance use problem where there just seems to be more going on in the mix, those in, in my books would uh, be good to you know, kick up for additional consultation. So is this condition in general pretty effectively treated? Do most patients get better when we uh, initiate treatment? Yeah, when we look at meta-analyses, the effect sizes are actually really good, in many ways actually better than we see in traditional treatments for depression. And once again, seasonal depression really happens on a continuum. Um, so uh, some folks respond very quickly and very easily to light box therapy, and it, it has very few to no side effects for folks. There's some schedule adjustments that we got to do. So we get up and get going in the morning and, and start that right away. But uh, otherwise, the side effect profile is really quite low. So it's a fairly innocuous you know, type of treatment. And for some folks, at worst, it can be inert. So I've tried it. I gave it a good college run in an evidence-based way with doing it, and it just still wasn't helpful. They're usually not dealing with a lot of other side effects or other things that go along with that as well, too. So relative to the types of interventions that we have, this is a great intervention in our toolbox and a, and a nicely straightforward one as well. Well, Craig, I'd like to conclude by maybe asking you to come up with two or three, maybe uh, some key points that summarize our discussion on seasonal affective disorder. Point number one is this is a recurring mood condition where the seasons are really the ones that are determining when the mood changes, both in terms of changing from a baseline and also returning you know, to baseline. A second point is that this is a very treatable condition. This is a known condition. This is also a very treatable one. And third, we have a lot of options by which to treat this as well. We've got these lifestyle interventions that we can do. We have the light box, we have medication management, and also cognitive behavioral therapy, which is a skills-based oriented therapy, all of those therapies are available. So what's great is that we can really work with patients and match choice and layer up their treatment if they need that. Well, we've been discussing seasonal affective disorder with Dr. Craig Sachuk, a psychologist in the Department of Psychiatry and Psychology at the Mayo Clinic. Craig, thanks you so much for sharing your expertise with us. This was a fascinating discussion. Great. Thanks for having me. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please follow us. Stay healthy and see you next week. <laughs>